Exodus 5. Great chapter. I'll introduce it like this. About, it was four summers ago. I was with my family. We're driving back to my house. We have this kind of gravel driveway that goes by some other people's homes. And there's this pond in one of the houses. And there's all these geese that right now they're there. They've come early this year. So this summer, there's a bunch of geese, a bunch of goslings. And as we're driving on this road, there was on the side of the road, just, just little furry goslings. So I kind of stop and I roll down my window and I look at him. And like one eye is bigger than the other eye. And it's like covered in like slobber and it can barely like stand up. So I'm like, what happened to you? So I get out and I pick him up. And there are like these three geese families up at the pond. So I thought maybe he got lost. So I took him up to the families up there. And as I'm walking up, they start walking off. So I just left him up by this pond and we went home. About two hours later, my oldest daughter, Carissa, and my youngest son, Myron, took a walk back down there. So we walked down there and he's still sitting in the same spot or she, I don't know, I don't know how to tell. So the gosling is sitting there and we're kind of walking up to him at the same time that we're walking up those three goose families, they're walking back too. And they jump in the water. And so when we walk up, he sees us, he jumps in the water and he starts to swim over towards those three families. And I'm thinking, great, family reunion. Not so much. One of the geese just attacked him and starts drowning him, her, it. Starts drowning this gosling. And my oldest daughter, she will not put up with that. So she just dives in and grabs the gosling and is like, you! Right? So I'm like, well, I guess we're taking him home. So we took him, her, we took the gosling home and I was raising chickens. So there was a bunch of little baby chicks in a cage. So we just put the goose in the cage with the chickens. Like, well, here's some friends. Here's a new family. It's strange. They don't look like you, but it's okay. So the whole time he's in that cage, just trying to get out. That's all that goose would do, just around and around and around. Like, I do not want to be in this cage. Eat a little food, drink a little water, then it's around, pecking, 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 day after day after day. So finally, I just open it up, and he gets out and just runs off into the woods. I thought, well, that'd be a lot easier just to let him go. It'll be lunch for a coyote. But I couldn't do it, so I went, and, and I got him, and I brought him back in, and then Myron comes out, and he's like, I've got a name for the goose. I'm like, oh no, this is really getting bad. What is it? Lucy the Goosey. (laughs) No, it's a girl. So, all right. Well, the next day I come down there and Lucy will not stand up. It's got something's wrong with its legs. It's not standing up. It just, and I try to stand it up. It would just fall over, stand, fall over. So I did what anyone would do. I Googled it, right? Goose will not stand up. So there's all these like sites that are like, oh, you have to cull that one. It's got a disease. You have to just kill it. I'm like, I cannot kill it. Myron just named it. I mean, what, what kind of counseling fund am I going to have to set up for him if I do that right now? Like, oh no. So, I mean, they gave no option other than kill it. There's got to be another option. So I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And I decided I'd take this old t-shirt and I cut out two little slits for Lucy's legs, and then I wrapped Lucy in this t-shirt and I hung it from this tripod where Lucy's feet could touch the ground 
but she could not sit down. And she is biting me and squawking and just so angry at me. I'm like, I'm trying to help you here. Stop biting me, right? So I finally get her inside the t-shirt. I get her in the tripod and then, all right. And I left her that way. I'd come down every once in a while, every day or so and feed her and she'd peck me and bite me and squawk and you're killing me, what are you doing? And I did this for like four or five days. So after four or five days, I took the t-shirt off of her and I set her down and she ran off just, I hate you. I'm like, yeah, but you're walking now. You were gonna die, right? That's Exodus chapter five. <laughs> oh, but it was really cute. Before she flew off to go to Cancun for the winter, she and my goat became best friends. And they would lie down like in the center of the field at night and just sleep with each other. I'm like, it's new creation. The wolf lies down with the lamb. The goat lies down with the goose. It's somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure of it. Lucy could not figure out why I was doing what I was doing because she's limited. A lot of times, what God is up to in our lives, his plan, his ways, would be like trying to explain the lunar landing to a bacteria. And we sit there and we squawk and we bite and we say, God, what's going on? Why are you doing this? He's like, you got to trust me. And we're going to see in chapter five, there's been movement with Moses. And this is a momentous step forward for him. Because Moses is Lucy. And Moses has all this anticipation, right? God showed up in a flaming bush. I threw down this stick, it turned into a snake. I couldn't believe it. My hand turned white. My hand got, I just, wow, Right? I tried to get out of it. I tried to get out of it, but God convinced me. He argued me into it. I've got my older brother with me. I'm grabbing the elders of Israel. Exodus 3.18 says, they're going to come with me. We have this team put together and we're going to go march into Pharaoh's throne room and we're going to set God's people free. Right? He is stoked. Get her done. Exodus 5. Let's go. Verse one, afterward, LinkedIn, verse 30 and 31, Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people and the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. You got national unity now behind this movement. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and moreover, I 
will not let Israel go. I could just see Moses and Aaron saying, that's not how we practiced it. Right? Uh-oh. It's a good discipline to compare what Moses said to what God told him to say in chapter 3. Because Moses changes it just a little bit. He, number one, didn't bring the elders of Israel with him. Why? I don't know. Maybe he never asked them. Maybe they refused to go. Maybe they got afraid and left on the way there. I don't know. But what God had said is not being done. It's just Moses and Aaron. When it was supposed to be a collective effort. And secondly, God said, you tell Pharaoh to let my people go to go make sacrifice to me. What does Moses say here though? Let's hold a festival. What has he done right there? He's made it a little bit less. Well, we're not sacrificing to Yahweh. We're going on vacation for a couple of days, right? We're gonna go have a festival. That's, that's all it is. Don't worry about it. It's like he's trying to ease Pharaoh into it. I'm, I'm helping you out, God, because your thing is too hard. Let, let's, let's, let's make this easier for Pharaoh to obey. The key in life, if you're going to obey God, is to obey God. Not to pick and choose the parts that you want to obey. Because then it's not obedience. So if I and my wife, we had to go somewhere in the morning, and so we woke up and we said, okay, kids, tomorrow morning, it's Thursday, it's Wednesday night, tomorrow morning we're going to be gone. We said, okay, here's what you need to do tomorrow morning. You need to get up at 6.30 a.m. You all need to take showers. You need to brush your teeth. You need to get dressed for school. You need to comb your hair. You need to eat breakfast. You need to get your school supplies. And you need to go to school. If we came home at lunch or whatever, and our kids are still there, we'd be like, what's the deal? You guys didn't obey us. Oh, oh, yes, we did. We got up at 6.30. We took our showers. We brushed our teeth. We put on our clothes. We ate breakfast. We got ready to go to school. We just didn't go to school. We obeyed you, mom, dad. Is that obedience? No. With God, it's either you obey him or you don't obey him. There's no middle ground to it. There's no, I kind of obeyed. Kind of obedience is simply disobedience. Moses doesn't really obey God here. He kind of, but man, he loses some real important things. And you and I, when it comes to scripture, we don't get to pick and choose the parts that we want to obey and we don't want to obey. It's either... I obey God's word or I don't obey God's word. Those are the only two options. So Moses right out of the gate kind of starting to stumble. And I think Pharaoh might even sense that. So what does Pharaoh respond? Yeah, I'm not doing that. Pharaoh essentially throws down the gauntlet and says, let's fight. You want to fight? I'll fight, which is exactly what you would expect from a man who believed he was the incarnation of the god Horus, who is the god of war. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Let's fight. Yahweh, never heard of him. And if you think about Pharaoh for a second, pretty reasonable. If you're king of this empire, 
and two nobodies one day just stroll in. One of them is 80 years old. The other one is 83 years old, right? They've traveled for miles. They like dirty and dusty. They're ancient, right? Average lifespan back 3,000, 3,500 years ago, 45 years of age. These guys are 80 and 83. They're, they're like, are you kidding me? People can't live that old. <laughs> so we went to Uganda with Dick Worthington and he's 75. And in Uganda and Kenya, average lifespan, it's about 48, 49 years of age. So when we would tell people, they'd be like, how old is that guy? We'd say he's 75. You could hear gas like, oh, no. We're like, really, it's true. He's 75. Here was the best. So when you fly into a Uganda, because of yellow fever, you have to get, if you don't have it already, a vaccination for yellow fever to get into Uganda. So I am very adverse to getting vaccinations in foreign countries, especially third world ones. Like you're not poking with the needle. So I was not gonna get poked with the needle there. So uh, when we're in line, this lady is checking everybody's like yellow cards or whatever. I just slipped right by her. Just in the chaos of third world countries, I just went around her. And then I went over to like, I gave my passport to the lady to go through immigration. Well, Jason had his, so he's okay. But Dick, James, Chris, and Wade, no yellow cards. So the lady's like, you need to go over to this tent. It was literally just like a sheet. You just go behind the sheet and get poked. So you need to go over there and get your vaccinations. Well, they're adverse to getting those too. So like, okay, sure. And they just went around and they headed. They didn't go to the curtain. They got in line. And so she sent the enforcer. So this dude just comes over. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm just at the table just like, where's my passport, lady? Give me my passport. She's like, I'm not done with it yet. I'm like, hustle up. So I just hear this conversation happening behind me. Why did you guys come over here without your vaccination? You cannot come into our country. Get back over there right now. And then he looks at Dick. How old are you? He goes, 75. Oh, you don't need it. <laughs> yeah, hands down. Like, dude, you're almost dead. We're not wasting the vaccine on you, bro. It was hilarious. We go to Kenya. Exact same thing. How old are you? 75. Yeah, not you. Sorry. It's so funny. Like, dude, you're too old to get a vaccine, man. That's the way these countries are. So Pharaoh's like, what? I'm supposed to listen to these two old guys, the ramblings of old nomadic shepherders? <laughs> Forget about that. And this Yahweh, I don't know who he is. This is the setup to the rest of this book, is it not? Because what is Yahweh going to do? I'll let you know who I am. Nine different ways I'm gonna let you know who I am. And I believe those nine different ways are God gracefully saying to Pharaoh, look out who you're messing with. I'm giving you nine opportunities to repent, to let my people go. You don't know who I am? Okay, buckle up. I'm gonna show you who I am. I'm sending my two spokesmen, prophets, and they're gonna speak to you. And all that will not be enough. So verse three, 
Then they said, this is Moses and Aaron. Listen how they change it now. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. The second time they ask Pharaoh, notice what they do. First, instead of saying Yahweh, they say the God of the Hebrews. While that's true, that's not who it is. He is the God of the Hebrews, but he has a name, and he has said, my name is Yahweh. I am the all-existent one. I'm not just the God of the Hebrews. I'm the one that exists in and of him, of myself. That's what the name means, right? So, so they kind of bring it down just a little, bit, a little bit less. And then instead of saying, let my people go, what do they say? Please. Please, right? They're begging now. And then they added this little thing to it. Um, if you don't, He's going to get us. When did God say that? He hasn't. They're ad-libbing. It's often very, very ill-advised to ad-lib for God. Because usually you're wrong. And they are massively wrong when they start ad-libbing. They start inventing stuff. Who's winning right now in this little debate? Pharaoh is winning. He has them on their heels. They have no confidence. And so now Pharaoh is like, well, okay, here's the problem. These guys don't have enough work to do. They're idle. They're just hanging out. Let's make it harder for them. That's his solution. And so he says, in order to make it even harder for them, I'm gonna take away their straw. I'm going to make it really hard. Here's what's fascinating. When you use straw in bricks, it did a couple things for you. First of all, if you had straw in your brick material, the moment you would put it in the mold, the straw held the brick together so you could immediately take the brick out. If you did not have straw in your mold, you had to wait for the brick to dry in the mold before you could take it out. How much slower would that be? Think about waiting for your molds, however many you had, to dry before you take bricks out. The second thing the straw did was this, it added strength. Like the straw had a little bit of acid in it and the acid would actually leach into the brick material and make it more plastic. Bricks are very brittle. 
So a little bit of plastic in the brick, all very, very useful. So he takes away their straw. Now, who does this ultimately hurt? (laughs) Right? Who are the bricks for? Pharaoh. Who's Pharaoh hurting here? Himself, right? And there's been these excavations that are just fascinating. It might be from this time period where there's like these layers of these super strong bricks that are made with straw. And then there's a layer on top of it where it's all this stubble kind of material, little sticks, pieces of root, like little pieces of metal, like just whatever they could get a hold of. And then on top of that, bricks with nothing in them, just, whatever, just pure brick material. It's like, yep, this is what happened. And those upper regions, super, super unstable. So Pharaoh here hurts himself. But here's what he's doing. This is our introduction to this Pharaoh, by the way. We knew the other Pharaoh back when Moses was born. This is 80 years later. This is another Pharaoh. So this Pharaoh, we're meeting him for the first time. What do you think of him? Good guy or bad guy? He's showing his true colors, right? If you're a leader and an issue is brought to you, there are a couple of big ways you can respond. Way number one is to say, I'm going to listen to you and I'm gonna try to reason this out and try to resolve this issue and I'm gonna try to help the situation. That's a pretty good way to respond as a leader. The second way is to respond like a dictator, like an authoritarian is, like, I don't even like that word now, like a dictator, where it's power and control and I'll do whatever I want and I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna hurt you. That's the way dictators respond. So right here, we're getting a glimpse into this Pharaoh's character. And you have from chapter four, through chapter 14, 20 times the Bible says, or uses a derivative of it, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 10 of those times, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. 10 of those times, it says Yahweh hardened his heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God do it? Or did Pharaoh do it? The first time you see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's in chapter four. You studied that last week. And it's God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So is God the one that makes Pharaoh obstinate, unyielding, unrepentant, unchanging? Well, it's interesting that God never says when he will harden Pharaoh's heart. I believe God hardens Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his heart because his character is being shown to us on page one. It's being shown to us in the very beginning of our introduction. This guy has a hard heart and that God just says, okay, fine. You will keep that hard heart. So Pharaoh has a disposition toward cruelty and hardness and God offers him a way out nine different times and he refuses even when his own guys say, chapter eight, this is the hand of God. Pharaoh, you're playing with the hand of God right now and you need to stop. 
And yet Pharaoh will not go back. He will not change his mind. I think the old adage is right. People are like tea bags. You don't know what flavor they are until they start getting into some hot water. And the true flavor of Pharaoh is coming out right here. So he ends his little diatribe. Verse nine, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Who is Pharaoh calling a liar? Yahweh. Yahweh's not gonna set you free. Yahweh's not gonna redeem you. Yahweh's not gonna save you. Yahweh's not gonna get you out of this. There's no promised land for you. You'll always be my slave. You'll always be stuck in Egypt. You're just a no good for nothing, mud breaking, baking slave in Egypt. Does that have a familiar ring to it? Have you ever heard that whispered in your own heart? You'll never be free. You'll never change. You'll never get out of this. You'll always be stuck in this. You're mine. You ever heard that? Anyone else ever called God a liar in the Bible? Genesis 3, right? Did God really say? Right? You're, this is just tracking through. This is a theme. It's an archetype of a type that is against God. will culminate in the New Testament with someone who's called the Antichrist. It's John chapter eight. You are of your father, a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. So Pharaoh is just in that line, right? Whether he is demonically influenced or possessed or dabbling in that stuff, he's tuned in to that frequency. So verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said, Thus says Pharaoh, (laughs) I will not give you straw. Go out and get your own straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? (laughs) Uh, Why not? (laughs) Hello, you took away one of our two ingredients. That's why. We need mud and we need straw. You took away half of our stuff. Now, isn't this part of Pharaoh's plan? It's actually pretty brilliant. Instead of him being the enemy, what has he done now? He's made the immediate enemy somebody else. It's those troublemakers. It's the union breakers. They're the ones. And this is setting us up for the big clash, right? Pharaoh and Yahweh. Verse one, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Verse 10, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. It's a cataclysmic clash. Whose word, whose word is true? 
whose word will become? Whose word is actually the ones that will stay there? Who's the liar? And who's the one telling the truth? Right? Now you go forward from here. Who becomes a liar over and over and over again? Right? Pharaoh, I'll let, your, I'll let him go, right? After every plague, I'll let him go. And then what does he do? I'm not letting him go. Who becomes a liar, right? It's, you're supposed to tune into that. He's calling Yahweh a liar, and yet we'll see nine times in a row, it's Pharaoh that is the biggest liar in the book. Huh. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Ooh, the word stink is literally in the Hebrew, you've given us bad breath. Halitosis, <laughs> how awesome is that? You need a breath mint, man, that is bad. So now who's getting blamed for the trouble in Egypt? Is it Pharaoh? No, it's Moses. And Aaron, the two that are working for their good, working for the redemption, working for their help. Pharaoh, this tyrant now, is able to stand back and be like, ha ha, I made a new enemy. And it's an immediate enemy. It's an enemy that affects you right now, today, and it becomes the focus, and I get out of it. So if you were to put up a little scoreboard, and on one side you're to write God, Moses, Aaron, and slash, and then on this side, Pharaoh and Egypt. Who gets the win of chapter five? Right, Pharaoh's decimating them. Right, they cower, they change their tune with him. He's got the people now angry with Mer Moses and Aaron. I mean, he is getting a giant win here. Aaron and Moses, they look like old doodling fools. Like, what in the world? With deliverers like you, who needs enemies? Like, you guys are morons. And Pharaoh is just firmly increasing his power and his grip and his empire on these people. He's winning. What do you do when your power is threatened? How do you respond? Is it control and I'll show them and I'll put them in pain and ah, reacting or is it and maybe I'm part of the problem which one is it okay so 
Pharaoh now is like, who is Yahweh? I don't care who Yahweh is. And he's showing us who he is. And then Yahweh is getting an opportunity to show who he is. But here's what we already know about Pharaoh. He is a proud man. Proud man. Who's Yahweh? What happens when Moses meets Yahweh? What does he say? I'm nothing. Why are you talking to me? I can't do that. I can't talk. Right? He makes all excuses. There's at least an attitude of humility. You've got Pharaoh who's just pompously proud, and you've got Moses who's humble, almost too humble. Like, come on, bro. Like the rest of this is really, you could say Moses and Pharaoh are a perfect example of 1 Peter 5 or 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You're either gonna get God's grace or you're gonna get God's fist. And Pharaoh is gonna get punched in the teeth. That's what's eventually gonna happen. The 10th plague is God says, that's it. I'm punching you in the face. You're either gonna get God's grace or you can get his fist. Like, don't you know already pride gets you in trouble? Like, don't you have like a journal at home where you're just like, every time I am proud, here's what happens to me. Or am I the only one? I've got one. And I've been on airplanes a bunch like this last couple of weeks. We, I flew to Whitefish, I flew to Maui, I flew to Africa. And I've been thinking about planes a lot and I was flying home from Africa and I happen to have the bulkhead seat, which is right by the bathroom. They're just the best seats, man. It's like 14 hours of like, stop, man. I just want to lock the bathroom. So it reminded me many years ago, I was, it was like 1997. I was working at Met One. A new engineer there and there. I was just flying around a bunch. It was before 9-11. So there's a lot more like freedom on planes, which I shouldn't have. So I'm on a, remember Horizon Airways? I don't even know, does it, does it exist anymore? Yeah, we called it Horizon Scareways, right? Because they, they, they had these little turbo props that would like drop 20 feet like that. <gasps> ah, ah, right? So I'm on one of them and there's one side that had seats and then the, there, there's one row on one side and there's two seats on the other side, and then there's a bathroom like at the end of the two seats. And I happen to have the seat right by the bathroom. I'm like, oh, praise God for that. So I'm there and I'm doing some work where it's a San Francisco to Medford flight. And this kid goes into the bathroom and I'm not really paying attention to it. And then like five minutes later, I hear him crying. I'm like, I kind of look up. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, the door is jammed. I can't open it. And so I look and, you know, you can tell if it's locked or unlocked. I'm like, what's well, unlocked? So I go over and I try to push on the door. I'm like, wow, it is jammed. And so I said, well, uh, step back a little bit. And so I kind of just got out of my chair. The fastened seat belt sign was off, so I was legal. And I just kind of gently hit the door and it did not open. And now the kid's starting to freak out. He's like, I need to get out. I want to get out of the bathroom. Help me get out of the bathroom. I'm like, hold on. Okay, okay. So I take just a step back. I'm like, I'm going to open this door. So I just put my shoulder into it and I heard kind of creaking and popping, but those doors are engineered well and it did not open. So 
I'm like, okay, I take another step back and I hit it hard and I hear popping and cracking. And this time didn't open. So I said, okay, kid, get up on the toilet seat. And so I had myself over in my seat and I've got my foot on the wall, right? And now people are kind of looking around at me like, what are you doing? And then I don't know why I said this to this day, but I said, it's okay. I'm an engineer. (laughs) I designed these things and I am ready to go through that door. When a flight attendant is just like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, there's a kid stuck in that bathroom and I'm getting him out. And she just came over and she grabbed the door and she opened it. Yes. I just sat down. Okay. Yeah. I didn't design that one. All right. And you could do it that way if you want. My way would have worked. All right. Fine. (laughs) Oh, man. Pride. Oh, you'll get punched in the mouth one way or the other. So here's Moses' response. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, He has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Woo! Right? Moses is Lucy the Goose. Right? Biting, angry. I don't understand this. What's going on? This is insane. Ah, I knew I shouldn't do this, God. I told you in chapter three, I don't want to do it. You forced me into it. Ah! What did Moses forget? God told him Pharaoh wasn't going to do it, right? He straight up told him, listen, you're going to go down there and do this, but Pharaoh's not going to let you out until I show up with a mighty hand. Moses completely forgot God's rules. And the first time something bad happens, Moses is like, I'm out, taking my ball and going home. That's why chapter six is so brilliant. It is such a brilliant chapter. It's how God deals with disappointed ministers. It's an amazing chapter. And God begins by just saying, you forgot who I am. And then he also says, there's this coming hope. And there's this genealogy, and we can get lost in genealogies. But there's this guy that ends the genealogy. His name is Phineas. And Phineas becomes a massive hero. He does something amazing. And so it's this, remember the original readers of this were mud brick, mud brick baking slaves. And they need to know, not only is God who he is, there's also a future and a hope for us and men like Phineas that will come. So it's just this brilliant way that God helps disappointed ministers. It's amazing. So two things and I'm done. Number one, Disappointment is the best barometer of the human heart. Disappointment is the best barometer of my heart and your heart. It tells me why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? 
Am I doing it because I'm called to do it and that's what I'm supposed to do and it doesn't matter? Or am I doing it because it feels good and because it's cool and because of accolades and because people tell me how great I am and how wonderful I am? And when things don't go right, I'm like, ah! When things don't go right, man, that's the opportunity to evaluate your heart. Why am I doing this? Why am I ministering? Why am I here? When people are not grateful, when they're not giving you thanks, when they're not patting you on your back, that's the best time to say, why am I doing this? When you feel like you've been taken advantage of, that's the best time to evaluate why you're doing things. Not when it's nice and easy. Anyone will love that. It's what Paul does. So he writes to this church called the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth, there was no church worse to Paul than the church at Corinth. They made fun of his voice. They said he's not an apostle. I mean, they're just constantly writing Paul. And he writes this to them. 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is not to get accolades from you or to make you guys say you're so great or you're an apostle or whatever. The reason why I do what I'm doing is because of the love of Jesus Christ. Disappointment is the best barometer of the human heart. And what we find with Moses is there's some work to be done. And most of us will find that in disappointment. There's some work to be done. Okay. Well, got a whole bunch more for Moses. Number two, when there's trouble, where do you turn? Right? So things get hard for the people. Straw's taken away. They still have to make all the bricks. Look what they do. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to oh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. Who do they cry to? Pharaoh. Who do you think they should have cried to? Yahweh. We're your servants. We're your... They should have said, hey, we know who we belong to. We don't belong to you. We're not coming to you. We're not begging anything of you. We're praying and fasting as a people right now to Yahweh. How different would this story be if they did that? I wonder. Would it be a lot shorter? Would they go through a lot less? But instead, when they're in trouble, they turn to the pharaohs of their life instead of the God that loves them right? So what, what, no doubt Egypt needs chapters 4 through 14. You know who else needs chapters 4 through 14? Israel. God's people need it. They needed to see God's strong hand as well. They needed the Red Sea. They needed the plagues. They need Mara. They needed it all because they don't trust God either. And like Lucy, sometimes we peck and we bite because we don't know, actually, Matt, that's what you need. You need this. You don't understand this, but you will. You need the Red Sea. You need Mara. You need these plagues. They're for your good. Because they train us to not turn to the pharaohs that are withholding straw from us. They train us to turn to our Father who loves us. And that's what Israel needs to be trained to do. 
And that's God's whole purpose in this. I'm moving this people to a place where they trust me and they turn to me instead of the pharaohs that hurt them and hate them. And so Jesus today, when we are troubled, may we turn to you, our Father, because you love us. May we be a people who don't fudge on obeying you, changing little things here or there to make it easier for others to accept or even for us to accept. May we simply obey you because you are the creator God. You are the one that speaks and it becomes. May we be a people that quickly pick out the lies that our enemy speaks to us, questioning you, questioning your goodness, calling you a liar. May we be a people that have our radars up, that are sensitive to your spirit, that can pick out the father of all lies. So I pray that you would go with us today. We will meet pharaohs on the way this week. So may your church be armored up. May we put on the full armor that you have for us. May we know that when we walk out these doors, we walk into a kingdom that's clashing with darkness. That we go to war in a real sense. So go with us. Go before us. Be our king warrior this day, we pray. And may we follow you, trusting and obeying. And I pray this in your name. Amen.